Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's deputy editor and podcast host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers, and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about the specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome back Gerd Loyal to the podcast. Gerd is a food writer, future foods consultant and regular columnist for Olive Magazine, sharing his favourite ingredients, books, producers and foodie destinations each month. And this month, he's released his first (laughs) book, finally, Mother Tongue, Flavours of a Second Generation, which is what we're here to talk about today. Welcome, Gerd. Hello, we're finally talking about the book. I think we've been talking about talking about the book for the past four podcasts. I think we have. That's quite meta, isn't it? Which means it's over a year. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And now it's here and and she's a beauty um, with a bright pink uh, cover, which is just gorgeous. It's pretty loud, isn't it? I mean, how has it been since the book came out? Are you just? I was at the. I was lucky enough to go to the launch party, which was. It was a party. It was, a <laughs> it was definitely not a shy return. Yeah. it's been. It's been amazing. It's been yeah. an incredible. Just, just seeing this thing that I've been creating kind yeah. of secretly in my tiny studio kitchen in in, in the British Library, just yeah. on my own, just seeing it suddenly oh. become a thing, yeah. and it's like a physical object. I mean, when I first got the physical book in my hands myself, which was just for Christmas, it was quite emotional but now yeah. to have other people who've ordered it yeah. <laughs> some people ordered it two years ago um it's amazing it's yeah. a really amazing feeling and actually it's sort of it kind of takes on a life of its own because suddenly now people are reading it they're reading their own things into it they're cooking from it they're yeah. adding their own stamps and twists to the recipes which i just totally love so 
it's really exciting. I never really thought about the fact that at some point it kind of, it's like your child that you let go and then you see it kind of take on whole new dimensions and whole new characters that you didn't even realise it kind of had. So it's really amazing. But you said you started way back, um, you know, over a couple of years ago. What, 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 was, what was the idea behind the book? Tell us a bit about that and how it came to be. So, I mean, I've worked in food for probably 20 years now and I spent a lot of my time, whether it was at Harrods or M&S in particular, I was often helping other people who'd bought out books to promote their books. And it was really interesting because a lot of people always said to me, well, you've done so much of this stuff now. Like, what do you cook at home? Like, you've got (laughs) such a wealth of experience in food. And it kind of got me thinking. I was like, well, when I cook at home, I kind of do this sort of hybrid thing of, things that are very British, very Indian, but that amalgamates all the stuff that I'm exposed yeah. to every day. And I was like, that's, it's a little bit kind of, is that just something that I do myself? I'm not too sure. And then I sort of started talking about this idea of this sort of hybrid, amalgamated kind of blended cuisine with other people, particularly friends of mine who are either British Chinese or British Caribbean, or I've got friends who are British Thai. And they were saying, that's exactly what we do. That's what yeah. we do. And, you know, we want people to write about this. Like, this is so interesting. And we sort of started, we were kind of having these conversations sort of over our lockdown walks and things about this. And I was like, well, I'm going to maybe put this down. Because actually, if I think about the, the food that is the truest expression of me, it is food that is not half British and half Indian. It is fully British and Indian at the same time, just yeah. like I am. So that's kind of where the idea came from. And, and it was something that as I spoke to more and more people, they sort of said, yes, that really resonates with how I cook as well. So I felt like it was a universal story, not just to British Indians, but to people of diasporas and people who are second generation, third generation, even first generation. Yeah. So we're calling it kind of third culture cooking. I yeah, I use the phrase third culture cooking. And <laughs> I, you know, like, I love that phrase. It's a really cool, you know, and I'm I can't claim ownership to it. It's yeah. not my phrase at all. It's um it's a phrase that's I suppose used quite a lot in Asian American cooking. Okay. Um but really what it's getting to is this whole idea of not being tied to one culture or yeah. another and actually not being made to pick between them. Actually it's sort of intentionally sets its own path down the middle. So yeah. this sort of third culture in the middle and says, well, I'm not one or the other, I'm both. Um, yeah. And a lot of diasporic cooks really kind of identify with this thing. Being third culture is not just something that's sort of attributed to cooking. You, you have third culture music, yeah. you have third culture fashion, you have third culture art. So it's a really interesting phrase that just, to be honest, it really resonated with me. So I've kind yeah. of taken it. As... And it, it kind of loosens things up a bit, doesn't it? It allows you to to sort of celebrate your heritage, but at the same time, step forward into something that is becomes you. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And there's this whole idea of kind of preservation of a culture but evolution of a culture at the same time and for me I find these questions really interesting because food is such a sort of it's such an emotive expression of culture but for me I don't think that you can only preserve your culture by recreating the past every time exactly how it was I think you can actually put your own stamp on things yeah definitely and keep things alive and I'm not saying that you know the recipes of the past and my mum's family in India and etc are not incredible because they are absolutely incredible but if I think about my story (laughs) my story is actually that having migrated to Britain and then me being born here so the truest expression of me and actually the evolution of that culinary tale is for me to put my stamp on things yeah. and kind of say, well, you know, I was really fortunate to be given the world I've been given in in Britain. I love going to India and I go sort of as often as I can, but also I've had this sort of worldly career. Yeah. So I kind of owe it to my 
past grandparents to say thank you by saying, well, this is what I've done with the food of our heritage. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you know, reading the book, as you said, you've brought in a lot of the influence from your travels, from your work, from, you know, from, from your whole career. So it's not just British Indian. It then goes yeah. beyond that. Um, and the, the ways of thinking about food are um, different. I mean, you were going to take us through some ways to put that third culture yes. spin on your cooking. And we're going to start with amplifying your pantry ingredients. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, absolutely. So there's a big theme within the book um, around thinking about flavours as if they're musical notes and flavour combinations. Yeah, flavour chords. Flavour chords, right? as I call yeah, them. Yeah. yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a trained chef, no. um, but I've worked in food for sort of over 20 years and been with, working with chefs and I've eaten a lot. I've been a, a professional eater, effectively. Um, and for me, what I want people to do is to sort of hone their intuition. Yeah. So, this analogy that I use around kind of flavour chords and kind of a flavour piano, what I want people to do is to really realise that in your sort of standard supermarket and kind of online websites, there are only certain ingredients that ever make it to the shelves. Yeah. And actually, if you go to a diasporic store, so an Indian supermarket or a Chinese supermarket or a Ghanaian store or a Greek supermarket, you're actually going to be buying products that are culturally rooted to those communities. Yeah. Because there's a reason that a Greek supermarket will sell certain olive oil or yeah. certain feta. There's a reason that an Indian supermarket will sell a certain brand of spices and have a plethora of different spices. And it's because the people that shop there regularly are really culturally attached to those brands and those products. So for me, I'm not saying abandon supermarkets because I love supermarkets. <laughs> but what I'm saying is you can amplify your pantry by adding to your staples that you buy every week with a couple of ingredients bought directly from desperate yeah. stores. And there is a world of flavour notes, as I call them, um, in those stores. And actually just going in, talking to the shop Talking keepers. to them. I think that's quite important, isn't it? Because you said, um, you know, it's all about appreciation, not appropriation, which is about you know, appreciating where things come from, asking totally. about them, asking about the journey, asking about the history, totally. you know, and kind of going into it that way. And even asking the Dutch shopkeepers, you know, I really like the taste of this. What's similar? Like, yeah. you know, if you like, if you really like the flavour of cumin, go into an Indian shop and say, I really like cumin. What tastes similar to cumin? Or actually, what else do you yeah. think I'll like? Because actually those shopkeepers will have a wealth of knowledge because yeah, yeah. they are serving Indian people in, yeah. in, the, in the most part. Um but by supporting the communities, um, you know, appropriation and appreciation is ultimately about whether you're dominating a community or you're supporting yeah. them. The best way to support a community is to go and shop in their stores. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's no better way. But actually, you'll be learning firsthand. So that's, I suppose, my first one is, you know, support the migrating communities in your area. And every, you know, we live in a sort of multi-ethnic yeah. world now. Of, there are loads of, particularly in London, but, you know, it, they're everywhere you are in the country. There will be a diasporic community that is sort of really have it will have a thriving food yeah. culture get involved because they would they want you to be involved and they'll be, they'll be very very inviting and also when you get a hold of ingredients you said um that you should try and taste ingredients in isolation like new ingredients try to kind of yes. you know expand your palate yeah that's that's my second sort of tip i suppose is to i guess almost train your palate with lots of different flavors because the more you taste the more you'll be able to sort of draw on i suppose sort of taste memories what you're effectively doing is trying to sort of build the bank of flavors that you have in your sort of head and in your yeah. memory um 
Because then what you'll find is that when you're in the kitchen and you're trying to sort of bring things together and be a bit improvisatory and kind of, you know, be a bit playful, the more things that you've got in your sort of culinary head of sort of your the piano in your head effectively the more things that you can effectively play so yeah. I really want people to sort of not only shop in desperate stores but then to just actually taste those ingredients in isolation on their own but also learn how the way that one ingredient is treated can completely transform how it tastes so yeah. you know something as simple as an onion you know you can chop it in raw in big chunks and you get like a bit of a pungent bite but you can really slowly cook that down with some butter and some onions and turn it into this sort of onion caramel almost. Um, But even, you know, something like green cardamom pods, if you put them in um, sort of whole, they're going to be quite sort of sharp, quite lemony. But if you sort of toast them and then you sort of powder them down, they're really floral and almost sort of, you know, they'll be sort of like roses and strawberries. So it's interesting because... Taste things in isolation, yes, but then also sort of learn how different treatments on an ingredient can then change the whole character yeah. of the ingredient. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. And that kind of leads into your next thing, which is about... um, the characteristics of an ingredient rather than the ingredient itself. So so there's this great um, a few pages of graphics where you've got these things called um, flavor bubbles. Is uh-huh. that right? Yeah. Yeah. So things like, you know, nutty and roasted, vegetal and root, fruity, floral and tropical. The one that I was looking at, which I thought was a great example, was the salty and umami. So, for example, you could have something like anchovy to stand in for salt, but then you could also have... Um, soy that stands in for salt or marmite you know all all those kind of umami flavors yeah so if you're thinking about putting a dish together it's like which what what, what's going to bring in the salty element i love that idea yeah and also what have i got in my pantry that i need to use up absolutely so this whole idea i guess it sort of is a build-on of this whole thing of mixing flavors from different cultures together and what i wanted to do was to kind of empower people to do this so the flavor bubbles in the book are sort of my way of doing that so as you say it kind of groups flavors not by where they're from in the world but by the character the flavor characteristics so you know salty and umami there are hundreds of ingredients from around the world that 
have a salty and umami profile. Um, And as I say, this is not a book about the science of flavor, but it is about ways of training your intuition. And this is broadly how I think about flavors. Um, But absolutely, I want you to think about what ingredients do I have in my pantry? Or actually, what could I go and discover that could bring, you know, it could be, for example, a sort of sour and sort of acidic element. Um, One ingredient I use in the book all the time um, is amtral, which we've talked about many times, which is dried mango powder. I mean, it's probably the ingredient I use the most in the book. But for me, what I love, what I use amtral for is to bring that kind of acidic halo Mm. that things like lemon or lime would normally bring. So, but, you know, you, you could use vinegars or you could use some tamarind or you could use all sorts of stuff. So what I want people to do is to think characteristics first and to almost sort of not be worried about a country or a yeah. cuisine because mixing ingredients from different cultures is basically third culture cooking and yeah. it's delicious <laughs> and it's wonderful. Um, I mean, do it in a respectful way and do it in a curious way that's genuinely interested in the cultures that you're taking ingredients from. Yeah, But do have a play and that's kind of what that whole flavor bubble thing is. Yeah, you've also got this really nice graphic at the front that... Um, it shows that you can take a base thing and you yes. take the example of um, of tomato, garlic and basil, which is very Italian, yes. classic Italian yeah. flavors together. And then you start saying, what about if we added this? What yeah. about if we added, you know, um, something Middle Eastern? What about if we added like, um, tog- I think it's togarashi salt? Um, and, it, and and describing which direction it would take those that base sauce into. I love that as well. Yeah. That's great. I, I suppose that's my next one though, really. It's about um, yeah. starting by thinking about those classic combinations yeah. and classic dishes. So every culture effectively has its own classic flavor chords or flavor triads, yeah. if you want to think about them as music. So tomato, basil, garlic, absolutely Italian, um, coriander seed, fennel seed and chili very Punjabi Um, something like scotch bonnet thyme and uh, allspice very sort of Caribbean so you kind of have these established flavour triads but for me what's really interesting and exciting particularly in something like a bolognese you know add a little bit of cumin add a little bit of tamarind and actually for me what I want people to do is to think about how adding an ingredient either contrasts or sort of brings in something new. And for me, the most exciting combinations tend to sort of do a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, But for me, the other thing what I really want you to do is to sort of think about how you can take very classic things and just add a third culture spin to them. So something like, um, you know, we've talked about a bolognese, something like a Victoria sponge. It's just such a classic recipe that is prime for playing with in yeah. an intercultural way. Well, it's a blank canvas, isn't it's, it? Totally, it is, yeah. totally. Um, so the, the, the Victoria sponge that I have in the book is a raspberry rose and passion fruit Victoria sponge. But there is, and there's lots of cardamom and lemon and all sorts of stuff that's going through it. But the other one, which is the simplest thing to play with, is scrambled eggs. Yeah. I mean, scram- me, for, in, personally, if ever I'm trying, if I've got a new ingredient, a savoury ingredient that I don't quite know what it is or how it works I will often just cook it into some scrambled eggs to see what it does because again that's quite a nice bland base flavour and eggs eggs do tend to go with everything they do they do (laughs) but the other thing that's interesting about the eggs is that the the fat in the yolk of the egg draws out more of the flavour and carries the flavour through it so you kind of get a true kind of expression of a flavour and if it's something that you're not familiar with just add it to some scrambled eggs just, yeah. as a, just to kind of help embed it to your palate. So, yeah, but kind of remixing the classics is a big sort of thing for me. And as I say, I really want people to play with flavour. Yeah, Saturday morning, playtime. Play, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to do that. 
Um, you're going to tell us about um, contrasting extremes of taste yes. as well. Yeah, this isn't. I mean, this is another thing in the book that's sort of quite a signature of my cooking. Um, I like to take things. I mean, there's there are no quiet flavors. No. In this book. Um, <laughs> it's I like, very loud. It like, is very like loud. <laughs> exactly. The food is as loud as I guess. Um, but one thing that I find really exciting is mixing extremes of sweet and sour and umami and seeing what happens. And often people sort of say, well, you know, you can't mix loud ingredients with loud ingredients. I actually disagree. I think that what happens is when you do mix loud ingredients with loud ingredients, it it sort of becomes this kind of explosive Explosion, flavor yeah. bomb. So, I mean, one of the examples of this in the book, I've got... Um, tamarind miso and date short ribs with kashmiri chili wow so the tamarind is an extreme of sour the miso is an extreme of salty umami yeah. and the date syrup is about as sweet as you can get <laughs> so it kind of combines and these short ribs cook down really really slowly mm. and they just become this kind of extraordinary combination of all of these things it's just something completely new um Another one that I have in there is I do some sort of um, crunchy sort of chicken lollipops, um, which are basically sort of chicken wings, effectively. But they are with kokum, which is a sort of sour oh, yeah. South Indian ingredient, and black treacle. Wow. Uh, and this combination of very, very sour kokum and very, very sweet kind of molasses black treacle yeah. is really, really delicious. So you don't have to go to the extremes but for me i guess i have quite a sort of almost a thai sensibility about my yeah, cooking that sort of sweet sour salty sweet sour thing. salty and kind of balancing things getting it balanced yes yeah. but for me actually what i find exciting is often when you think about balancing you're thinking about getting things sort of you know nice and harmonious neat. Oh, yes, whereas I mean, you're like whereas i'm like no <laughs> throw loads of this and loads of this because ultimately it's still going to balance out yeah because i got... think you were talking about in one of the recipes is it taiwanese chicken where yes. you get the salt oh, you get a sprinkle okay, there's a lot of sprinkling there's a lot of there's stuff a lot of sprinkle. there's a lot of sprinkles <laughs> there's a yes. lot of sort of texture sprinkle I... there's a yes. whole um chapter where you're talking about crisps yes. <laughs> yeah 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 crunch crunch Crunchies, i mean crunch is a big yeah. almost a character in this but yeah i you know i love taiwanese fried chicken yeah i just love it like one of my favorite things to do either before or after a night out is to go and have Taiwanese fried chicken in Chinatown yeah where my favorite thing about it is that they have all those flavor dusts yeah and they're all so different you've got like spicy tomato with cheese and like a sort of mala chili pepper and then you've kind of got like a miso powder and nori seaweed and then like something totally random like plum powder yeah. and I love it so much <laughs> and it really does come through in a lot of my cooking yeah. Love that flavor explosions. Um, you're going to tell us about getting curious as well, asking your friends about the yes. dishes of their family, you know, really just doing a deep dive into other people's. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing about third culture cooking. It is very much an expression of the cooks, and yeah. of the migratory journey that their family will have taken, and then the continuing story of what happened to that family when they arrived in whatever country they sort of arrived in and then the journeys they might have taken after that so for me there are every single family and I talk about it in the book every single family that's ever migrated anywhere yeah. um, which is basically every family in the world will have an incredible culinary journey and tale that's kind of yeah. entwined within what they cook every day like there'll be a reason that they cook things on a on a Sunday or for celebrations or for feasts or whatever it might be. And for me, that's just so exciting, especially yeah. in 
the multicultural Britain that we live in today, this sort of idea that there isn't just one third culture cooking, there is as many third culture cookings as there are combinations of people to kind of be in the world. Yeah. So I find that really interesting and really exciting. I love talking to other people about, you know, well, what do you do on Sundays yeah. and what do you eat at weddings? And it's Easter, what do you cook for that? And I find that really interesting and exciting. And actually often the most inspired I am from a food perspective is when I'm having those conversations with mm. other people. And then I'm invited into their homes or we kind of do a Tupperware swap and we're swapping dishes yeah. and things. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Jenny, does an Asian dessert exchange, which oh, is wow. just one of the most fun things I've ever kind of been involved with, where we sort of get sort of 20 to 30 different Asian food creators kind of in London and what Jenny does is sort of creates these Asian food box where everyone brings in something from their own culture uh-huh. and I just love that because you get it's often sort of an interesting brief there might be an ingredient that everyone's going to be used or there might be sort of you know a, a sort of theme around it but it's so interesting to have 20 diasporic Asian chefs of across Asia yeah. sort of just given this brief of okay everyone make a thing and we then sort of turn these potlucks into kind of these boxes that Jenny sends out. I mean, she's she's Celestial Peach on um, yeah. Instagram. You must follow her. Check but her um, yeah. for me, you know, that for me has been one of the most inspiring things I've been involved with because it is this sort of story of diaspora told through food. And yeah. there are hundreds of stories to kind of discover. And you just, you know, even in your own family, there'll be stories that you don't know. Yeah, you, you said in the book that you're... you're um... You know, in your own home, there was kind of this constant like exchange of Tupperware yes. between because, you you know, the, I guess the point you were making was that, um, your family's Punjabi. Yeah. But then th- that you had friends yes. and relations like like from all over no, India absolutely. and everyone would do yeah. things differently. Yeah. And the really funny bit I thought was that you said um, if it was. If someone had brought Punjabi food, yeah. then it was game for being <laughs> yeah. ripped apart by your mum and oh no, that would, we wouldn't do it like that. But if it was from if it was from another region, yeah. Yeah. you'd be fascinated was, by it. You'd be like, yeah. how did they make that chutney? How did they do this? Exactly. We have to try and do. It. I love that though. <laughs> I mean, it's t- I mean, it, it goes on to this day. Yeah. I mean, I was at home on the weekend and there was a, there was a whole load of Tupperware containers that contained amazing food. I was like, where's this from? I was like, oh, the neighbours across the road had a birthday the other day and they brought it over. So, I mean, yeah, I'm from Leicester, which is one of the most culturally diversities yeah. in, in, in the UK. I'm very, very proudly from there. Um, so, you know, interestingly, although we, you know, we grew up going to India every year, but yeah. we went to Punjab, which is where my family is. Um, interestingly for me, I ate across the Indian subcontinent in Leicester <laughs> because, you know, we had friends or people that went to school with my dad or kind of people that sort of we yeah. both parents worked with or neighbours who were from like Sri Lanka or from from Tamil Nadu in the south of India or from Bangladesh or from kind of the Bengali area or from Calcutta or from Bombay. So completely different parts of India to where my family's from or from Goa or from Kerala, wherever it might be. So what was really amazing was that sort of between these desperate families, there was this constant exchange of food because it was always, you know, Indians of all types, south to north, um, celebrate everything. (laughs) So there was this constant stream of, you know, whether it's a religious celebration or a cultural celebration or a birthday or a wedding, whatever it was. So there was just boxes and boxes and boxes of food just circulating between houses always. And as I, yeah, as you say, when, if it was Punjabi food that came back, we'd be like, well, it's not as good as ours. But if it was Kerala food or Goan food or kind of, you know, Bangladeshi food, yeah. it was like, wow, what is this? It's so, it was almost like it's a brand new cuisine. So um, yeah, it was fun. And it's, you know, it's the way that I love to live now. I, you know, I love having this exchange of tough work containers between friends of mine in yeah. East London now. Fantastic. I think I want to be adopted by your family, though. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like such a riot. 
Um, you said um, that salt and acid are like the brightness and contrast filters for cooking. Yes. I mean, is that how you use them to turn it up, turn it down? I mean, turn it up, turn it down. I mean, if you've ever been on my Instagram, you'll know I love a filter. I mean, when it comes to food, um, you know, I mean, this is not sort of a new idea. And, you know, that brilliant book, Salt and Acid Heat, sort of is kind of the tome that really kind of got this idea kind of out into the mainstream more. But salt and acid in particular, you know, if you're mixing ingredients from different cultures and you're not too sure about it, and when you kind of taste it, you're not too sure... A lot of the time, the thing that it will need is salt and acid. And actually, one of the things we talked about a bit earlier, you can use lots of different things to bring in salt from different cultures. And you can use lots of different things to bring in acid. Or you can just actually add a tablespoon of salt and add a bit of lemon juice or add a little bit of vinegar. Um, And that for me is, I think, the thing when you're mixing ingredients from different cultures, don't, I guess, don't forget about the salt and acid because they are still going to be needed. Still going to need them. and often they will help kind of amplify the flavors even more. Um, but yeah, do think about, you know, what else can I, what else could I use? Yeah, cool. Um, let's talk about some exciting third culture food creators, because I know you've got a few yes. for us to um, go and check out yes. online. Third culture cooking is not something that's unique to me or to Britain. It's something that's, you know, sort of a, a global thing. One author that I really love is... Uh, Eric Kim, who is a New York Times food writer who wrote a really brilliant book called Korean American. Um, That's sort of, I guess, sort of doing what I'm doing from a third culture British Indian perspective, but from a Korean American perspective. It's a really, really incredible book with some really interesting flavor combinations. He's very sort of lyrical and about the way that he talks about this and he weaves his own family story into it and I yeah. just really like his writing love his recipes um it's a brilliant writer called Sarah Woods who's just brought out a book called Desi Kitchen um which oh, yeah. is basically celebrating um the sort of hybrid and blended cuisines of the South Asian diaspora across the country so she's sort of been all the way from sort of Glasgow down to the tip of the country and spoken to people from um South Asian communities and she's sort of celebrating the whole country and different South Asian communities across the country in this book, which I just totally loved. Um, There is a brilliant brand called Omsom, which is a sort of third culture Asian cooking source company. Um, You can get them over here if you in a kind of a few select online stores. Um, But it's a really interesting brand and they talk a lot about sort of, they have a lot of very comedic third culture sort of... (laughs) Instagram posts and things that they do, which I think are really fun. Cool. Um, and then the, the last one is, is the book that we talked about quite a bit, um, which is Chinese-ish, which yeah. I loved, which was by Joanna Hu and Machine Call. Um, and that was really celebrating you know, the ish there yeah. is the sort of third culture twist the, yeah. to their own Chinese sort of heritage. Um, I really love that book. As always, you're bigging up everybody, everybody else, else as well. well I know. You know. But I mean, you are. You're such a great champion as well, which is brilliant to see. I just think, you know, food gets more exciting when everyone picks everyone up because no ideas are ever ever sort of created in isolation. And actually, for me, what I want this book to do is, well, yes, it is my book telling my story. Actually, I'm really sort of open about the fact that this book, I want to open up the fact that there are thousands of stories, millions of stories that are as exciting and as interesting as mine, that are British Indian stories, that are third culture stories. And this is mine, but actually I almost sort of wanting to use this book to kind of open the door and say, 
let's let's hear loads more because there are so many exciting stories out there. And it is amazing storytelling. There's so much in there. Um, a lot of brilliant and colourful intros, which are stories <laughs> yes. in themselves. And I've written down references to um, The Spice Girls, yes. Funny Craddock, Pucker Pies, yes. Daytime Clubbing, yeah. The Karma Sutra. Mary Poppins, as well as loads of personal... Yeah, pretty I mean, much every gay pop yeah, star icon yeah, that there yeah, is. Yeah. <laughs> Liberace's in there quite Liberace's a lot. Liberace's in there, Freddie yeah. Mercury, George yeah. Michael. George Michael. But yeah. then, you know, Marla, the composer, yeah, yeah. Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, is in there. Of course, yeah. Nasir Khan, the, 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 the classic Indian singer, yeah. And loads of personal family stories as well. Your mum and dad feature quite heavily. They do feature. <laughs> <laughs> My mum in particular, yeah. I know, your, yeah. your mum was, she had a radio show. I she mean, did. who knew? It's just fantastic. She did and you know so my mum's radio show was um kind of a, a sort of it was kind of a sort of a gossip and cookery show yeah. basically but what was amazing was that she would have listeners calling in sharing their recipe wisdom yeah and every single call that called in would say mine is the definitive recipe yeah, for course. this mine is the definitive <laughs> recipe and my mum would be so curious that every yeah. single recipe that was shared on air yeah she would make so we grew up you know what the one thing that i talk about in the book is this chickpea lentil cake called dogla, which is yeah. a very Gujarati snack. Um, um, I, we would eat at least two or three a week because mum would say, oh, well, a listener's called in and actually they use half a teaspoon of baking soda and a teaspoon of baking powder or, oh, they use lentil flour and they use chickpea flour or, oh, they, they're fermenting their batter. And I mean, I'm, I feel like this dish is almost sort of as... <laughs> it feels like it's something that I've always grown up eating because... Yeah. Um, my mum just loved to experiment yeah. with all of that. But I love that. I love the fact that the, each of those iterations of that recipe yeah, was a one family. recipe had. There's, it's, yeah. Every family had its own iteration of it. You know, I, I talk that. a lot about this idea of authenticity and what it kind of means. And for me, that's a great example because which of those is the authentic dog? No. They all are. <laughs> they all are to their own families. I mean, so. you only have to post an Italian dish on Instagram <laughs> to see <laughs> to talk about authenticity. Exactly. Because even all the Italians start fighting with each other exactly. about whether it's right or not. Exactly. Um, the ones I want that I've noted that I want to make, I mean, I, I said to you, I actually started writing down the entire book, but the ones that jumped out at me were the, um, the miso masala fried chicken sander, which yes, is in the current one. issue of Olive Magazine. It is, it's yes. a lovely book. Um, Stilton and Tamarind Mumbai Toasty. God, that looks so good. Uh, the tahini mala malai wings. Yes. And the kasundi kima lasagna rolls. Yes. Oh, God, looks so yes. good. But um, yeah, I just wanted to finish by what you said for number 10, which was um, stay curious, ask questions and play with your food. Because yes. that's what the book's all about, isn't it? It is. And, you know, this is sort of my whole ethos is I want people to bring their travels yeah. into their kitchen, to bring the people that they meet into their kitchen, to invite people into their kitchen, yeah. to, to angle an invite, to be invited into someone else's kitchen and to play with food. And actually, for me, the food that is kind of the best expression of Britain today is food that amalgamates cultures together yeah. because we are this cultural kind of mix of all different things. And I think food is in many ways kind of a really connecting force. And yeah. I'm sort of, you know, really sort of powerfully stand for that. Um, and playing with your food is just a delicious way of bringing people together. Yeah, I love it. Um, so if people want to buy the book, it's called Mother Tongue Flavours of a Second Generation by Gerdie Bloyle. And you can find Gerd on Instagram at Gerd underscore Lyle. Is that right? That's Brilliant. Right. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us today, Gerd. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. 
do remember to listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where our guests reveal their best cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.